Welcome to the Rerooted Podcast with Francesca Maxime, trauma-sensitive mindfulness meditation teacher and poet. Together, we'll take a closer look at approaches to transforming trauma with insights from psychology, neuroscience, spirituality, social justice, and the creative arts. Join Francesca and her guests for an exploration of our shared connection and how we can cultivate greater compassion for ourselves and for others. If you'd like to support Francesca and the Rerooted Podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Francesca. Hey, everybody. I'm Francesca Maxime. Welcome to the Rerooted Podcast here on Ram Dass's Be Here Now Network. Uh, today, I am absolutely thrilled to be able to bring a conversation with together with Larry Ward today, Dr. Larry Ward, the author of America's Racial Karma, a really condensed, beautiful, delicate, profound, poetic tome that I would highly encourage you to pick up and and read if you haven't already. Um, There's a lot in it. We're going to get right into it. Hi, uh, Larry. It's so nice to see you. The founder of the Lotus Institute also. Um, A pleasure. Great to see you too, Francesca. How have you been? Okay. We're sort of of riding the waves here. Mm Mm-hmm a year plus into the global pandemic and also into the great uprising. Mm-hmm. Um, you've been a practitioner uh, in Thai's tradition and Thich Nhat Hanh's tradition. He's your primary teacher uh, is my understanding. You can correct, correct. me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Correct. Um, for decades. Mm-hmm. And you wrote this book, why? Tell us why and how your teachings, your learnings, your understandings um, really were condensed into what you put here. Okay. Um, thanks for the question. And I'd summarize it this way. Uh, the why is I wanted to apply what I had learned through my practice in Buddhism, as well as my scholarly work in Buddhism, to my lived experience of race in America. And I wanted to invite people into a deeper look at the human psychology and nervous system interactions um, that create and sustain white supremacy as opposed to non-white supremacy. Um, so that, that'd be the, my short answer on why. Um, Mm -hmm. And that, and that integration of nervous system regulation practice and scholarly work, um, around Buddhism and, and understanding of, um, the history and also obviously your own lived experience, Mm -hmm. uh, of the history. Uh, of this country do come together so well. You weave them together so well. You know, I sit here, and usually I say this at the beginning of the podcast, but I'm on Unkachag land here in Long Island, New York, and I'm sort of inter- sort of multiracial, multi-ethnic, intersectional, middle-aged, you know, woman, Haitian, Dominican, Italian-American, you know, has, has the education and stuff like that. So I have some access to privilege mm-hmm. and I also have some marginalized or subjugated mm-hmm. to use mm-hmm. Dr. Kenneth Hardy's terms, identities, and um, able-bodied, cisgendered, mm-hmm. heterosexual woman. And I say all that just to say that as I've come into my understanding around my own social location, which I call, you know, positionality, I've begun to, and practice, uh, I've begun to be able to understand more about my own learning arc and my own understanding mm-hmm. of where and how white supremacist delusion mm-hmm. fits in me and mm-hmm. is in me and is sort of the, the water I have to navigate and also how I do or do not collude or participate with it knowingly or unknowingly. So can you talk a little bit about your own identity and your own coming into your understanding of how and where you sit in the world as yourself and also how the world has been with you in America, particularly, because of course, across the world, I'm sure you've had different experiences, Mm -hmm. um, 
when it comes to issues around white supremacy. Okay. Well, I'm speaking to you today um, from the land of the Kumeyaay people, uh, North County of San Diego. My pronouns are he, him, and his. I um, have a socially constructed identity as an African-American, as a male, um, which I'm fully aware of. Um, it's almost gotten me killed several times, so I know. I know it has a reality to it. it. It has a response to it by both individuals, the collective psyche of the country, and every system involved, economic, political, cultural. Um, so for me, this is, that's why for me, the, the frame of the 500 years since the doctrine of discovery is important to understand because it gave in the mind of Europeans, particularly Spain at the beginning, uh, you know, Portugal, blah, 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 and all the others that came later, the idea that they were so superior as a species of human being that they literally not only had the right, they had the divine mandate to commit genocide, to rob, to steal, to kill as a holy act. And, and so for me, unless what, what I have learned is unless you can get that deep an understanding how entangled this is, in people's very understanding of their humanness, like at the root, you can't pull it out. Right. Uh, so, you know, we've had every political process you could imagine, and it's still there. Um, I was uh, re reviewing an interview with Harry Belafonte recently on uh, Martin, Martin Luther King's assassination anniversary last month, and he he was saying in the in uh, private conversations, which I heard about from some other um, colleagues on the march, so to speak, years and years ago, that Martin was always worried um, that we were trying to integrate into a burning house, mm. Mm. and um, and James Baldwin also used that same phrase in the fire next time, but mm. that. Um, and what's to me, what's how you, how I recognize the tragedy um, of white supremacy is in terms of looking at it many ways, but one of the ways I look at it as through the eyes of the victim with S, victims, past, present, and current through the eyes of the perpetrators and through the eyes of the witnesses who watched. Yes. And all three of those lenses on racial suffering and white supremacy uh, are traumatized by its very existence. And by traumatized, I mean our nervous system in this land ha collectively has never been stable. And now we can see it. We've been able to contain it, you know, with malls and movies and shopping and, and et cetera, that facade of sanity. Mm. But it, it's not, it's not, it's not holding. Um, what's happening, someone described recently as a neuro existential crisis. Mm hmm. We, we no longer have God in heaven. We no longer have an ideal father to tell us what to do, though many people are still looking for one. Um, and it, it, and so we now have to grow up in terms of learning to develop a nervous system that can live in uncertainty mm -hmm. and thrive. Mm -hmm. And this is where for me, the practice, uh, really comes into play. Mm -hmm. So that I can bring my, the, the constant training of my own mind and retraining 
of my own mind uh, and my own heart into my lived experience and not get trapped in the conditioning of constantly reacting to how I've been socially constructed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it was one of the most shocking things I, I experienced in a pleasant way and uh, and living in, and having a chance to teach and work and help and learn from many different places around the world. Um, most people have not had that a global experience on the ground. I'm not talking about hotels and living in villages, sleeping on the ground, right? <laughs> walking for water in the morning, right? right. <laughs> All of that and digging latrines, et cetera, and building schools. And that grounding and basically, I would have to say the kindness I experienced everywhere on the ground. Mm. I'm not talking about high up in the air. Yeah. Though that wasn't as, as bad as one might think compared to here. <laughs> but on the ground, uh, with people in Calcutta, on, on, on the ground with people in Hong Kong and on the ground with people in Mexico and in the mountains of Italy and et cetera. I, I, I got to see humanity beyond description. I got to experience, um, aliveness that transcended categories. Yeah. And this is also where the, the practices helped me have a, a framework to be able to recognize that experience when it's happening. That's right. I love, I love that. Um, you know, Dharma teacher Gina Sharp always says, you know, in our direct experience, what is happening in our direct experience? And that's precisely what you're pointing to is, and that's when we, when we practice, you know, people like to, Think about the jhana states where we have all kinds of sparkly experiences right. where it's just a cloud of usness and <laughs> you know weeness. And your direct experience is when I am, and the name of this podcast is intentionally mm -hmm. titled Rerooted. It's to right. find our rerooting into the earth mm -hmm. when you're on the ground, when you are. Mm -hmm. I always say we're not only on the earth, we're of the earth. Yes. But we forget that. And that what you're talking about, your experience of that palpable, interdependence. It's a need-based interdependence. Sonia Renee Taylor talked about this in a recent mm. uh, video she did the other day. And she was saying how, you know, white whiteness, white supremacist delusion will not have people understand how to be in right relationship because the privileges and the entitlements that mm. have been afforded through the divisions of that delusion exactly. are necessarily at odds with the required interdependence around what communities that have been subjugated or marginalized have right. used to sustain one another forever. And when you're talking about being on the ground, in the ground, and having that like no separation experience, it's it's fluid because it's real, because it's organic, because there is no separation. I am yeah. because we are. We are, are. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that um you know, my my current view right now about what we need or what i'm i'm hoping i know others are working on but i'm i'm hoping to contribute to understanding our nervous system well enough to understand how it's been conditioned by white supremacy by our own lives by our families, by our school systems, by our work ethic, by our whatever cultural context we have so that we can have enough distance from that to look at it and decide, what do we keep of this? What do we throw away? And what do we modify? And I'm sure there's other questions you could ask, but if we, it's like if, if we can't get outside the water we're in, uh, or the Einstein image of you have to transform things at a higher level of energy that they were created. Mm -hmm. And that for me is again, back to the practice and why it's revolutionary 
though I only say that to certain people, <laughs> because it puts us in touch with the lived experience of energy, not just matter. Right. So part of part of the whole essence of the paradigm of colonial existence um, is this perception of everything is matter. And, you know, when God is not here, you can think like that. So everything is matter and all matter is to be extracted to create value, transported, commercialized and repeat. That includes people, that includes bodies, that includes trees and water. Everything is perceived of as an independent, separate self to be commodified. And this, again, for me, is where the teaching, if you go deep enough in it, when you begin to understand there is no separate self in that sense of it, then you can understand that every choice we make and how we think about reality and how we think about one another affects the lives of all of us, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. whether near or far away. That's right. And and I think the invitation is always back to the doctrine of discovery and manifest mm-hmm. destiny and some of the seeds of the mm-hmm. delusion that were planted mm-hmm. in favor of greed, really, right. exactly. which is in favor of fear, really, yeah. which is yeah. in favor of scarcity, which is the yeah, matter exactly. argument that you're talking yeah. about versus yeah. the energy argument, which is mm-hmm. the wave of interdependence and the process that we all are. Um, I always say, the, the thing I always like to say is, well, when you came into this world, if you're a human and we're talking, I'm assuming you're a human, unless dolphins and cats understand what I'm saying. Maybe they do. Okay. I don't know. You are actually attached to another human. Mm-hmm. So this idea of being connected is is quite literally how we came into this world. Quite literally. Yes. Um. And yes, of course, we have to snip the umbilical cord and then goes on the process of, of, of growing. But I, I want to bookmark a couple of things that you said and come back. You said, because I think this piece of manifest destiny and white body supremacist delusion, a lot of people will do the whataboutism around. But what about, you know, not just anti-black racism, but it's, it's, it's bad for me here, right? Like there's anti-Semitism, there's ableism, there's... Um, you know, clearly there's anti-Asian hate and, and, and right. all of that. And, and, and I think practice makes space for fully appreciating all forms of that dominant, subjugated, mm-hmm. you know, dynamic. And also what you're bringing to the table in this book, America's Racial Karma, is the specificity around the seeds of anti-Black racism that have fomented a lot of the other isms that have exactly continued to perpetuate uh, occluded thinking and seeing um, and supported these systems of oppression, you know, but that there, there's something about the witnesses, the victims and the perpetrators mm-hmm. that you talk about in here that I'd like to invite you to explain a little bit more about how that lives in the nervous system of each of those three groups. Okay. Um, well, from I'll start with the, the victim, quote unquote victim. I, I I don't like using that word because again, it defines me less than I am. Sure. But I'll use that word. But for the victim, what I've been meditating and starting to write on most recently is the the experience of melancholy. And what uh, I ran across that language, and what that means for me is for many of us african americans in particular but not limited certainly that any group you want who is not in the high power seat um never gets a chance to complete the process of grieving over their suffering Mm. never gets a chance be somebody's killed before the next funeral is over right you have a march and the next day, and you know, so this, and out throughout the whole history of this country, this progress and backlash, um, and you know, reconstruction and the Klan, et cetera, this whole dynamic of refusal 
to acknowledge another person's humanity is also, I'm moving over to the perpetrator a little bit, is also the woundology of not acknowledging or recognizing your own. Your own humanity. Your own humanity. So what we know from the practice, whatever whatever state our minds and bodies are in, uh, drive our behavior. And, but not only that, but those states we are in own us unless we transform them. Our anger will own us. Our fear will own us. We become that. And without the skills, the spiritual skills that can come through many practices and many traditions um, to help us live an alert life uh, in the deepest levels of ourselves, the subtlety of our mind, the subtlety of our motivations, where we can always be checking in with ourselves as we think about one another, as we think about our school, as we think about our family, our children, we can check in on our speech. Is, is, is my language, I mean, this is, a, I think, a major transformation. Most of our language is wound-centered, mm-hmm. um, um, trouble-centered, and certainly there, I, I still have wounds. I can, I can find them on my body. <laughs> but I am not the wound. Right. And so, but our, our context here constantly reminds us that w- that's what we are. And that's our summary of, uh, of who we are. And so I think man, with our language, we've got to create, and I think it's starting to happen, more language that helps us uh, define ourselves both in the particular powerfully, but also in the universal powerfully. Mm, mm, mm. Beautiful. Yeah. And I mean, what comes to mind as you're saying that is um, black joy, resilience, creativity, you know, all of the ways in which um, there's, you know, I am not the wound, like don't presume to only see me through this particular lens. And um, Lamarado Owen says, I don't get to consent to how other people see me. Right. Like, and also I am, as I am, regardless of how I'm seen by anyone. Um, What about, if anything, the witnesses? Because I think that's a more nebulous place where when you're witnessing the systemic white supremacist delusion, when you're experiencing that, when you are the inheritor of that, that nervous system is more inclined to do what and how might it move toward a place of greater health or balance or engagement? Okay. Um, well, I, I think the first thing, and this is kind of normal in, in our, in our, in our mammalness as a species, but uh, this morning I was taking care of some plants out front and a, a, a snail was in full bloom. And the closer I got, the more it hid. Uh-huh. And so the first part of the nervous system response to threat or fear is hide uh, or immobilization or feeling stuck. Uh, or uh, popular language and resilience work is I'm in a freeze. Mm-hmm. I'm disassociated. I'm, I'm emotionally uh, far from my body, <laughs> and uh, and that is is like people who can't remember something after a traumatic accident, or that's our nervous system works to protect us as survival. I'm not trying to say that's bad or anything. That's natural. That's human nature. And then there's the the next piece, which is. Uh, if we if we can't hide, uh, then we move to the next level of energy, which is to mobilize. Mm-hmm. And as you know, we either mobilize our energy to run away or we mobilize our energy to fight. Mm-hmm. And what I 
started to realize as I worked on the book and other things I'm working on is that the the structures of the colonial process, both external and everything we have embodied that is unwholesome around that, keeps us in fight, flight, or freeze. Mm -hmm. The third space the nervous system already has and can step into uh, is, is, is a state of peace and equanimity. Social engagement. Social legal. engagement, right? Mm -hmm. And it's, it is so clear to me, years ago in Chicago where I was living, I was involved in uh, a group. We created a seminar on, on Black heritage and white racism. This was like in 1969. Wow. And uh, we got a group of people together, kind of half black, half white. And... Um, we came into the room. I was a, a, you know, I was just a junior teacher learning from other people. And um, when I walked in the room, I knew it wasn't going to work. <laughs> My body knew it wasn't going to work. Yeah. And what I realized was that after years and years, and once I started doing the trauma education and et cetera, I realized everyone was stuck in the, in the bottom two rungs. Uh, and because nobody wanted to fight, <laughs> didn't, everybody was right, too exhausted to fight yeah. and too exhausted to flee. Everybody was went into a freeze. Mm. So nobody could really talk. They couldn't make eye contact very well. And I went through a similar process in Plum Village, France, mm -hmm. uh, maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago or more with a group of Palestinians and Israelis during a 21 day retreat. And I can describe the journey those groups went on through those nervous system stages. Mm. And in the first two, and when you're immobilized as a witness, which is what happens with most witnesses, they, they literally like a rabbit in the road. They're, they just, th their body does not respond. There are even stories of people who, you know, had a fire in the house break out and they ran outside and remembered, oh my God, I forgot my kids. Right. <laughs> the body responds. It's not just a cognitive thing. Right. Um, so I think unless we learn how to go deep and recognizing our own humanness in this way and at this level, uh, because what, what uh, the genius of white supremacy is it, it has a plan to keep us in the fight, flight, or free state. Mm -hmm. Our economy does it to us. Our politics does it to us. Our media. Our media does it to us. So for me, part of the question is, do, do I want to live that way? <laughs> and this is where the practice can also be extremely helpful. And I mean practice in the broadest sense of a spiritual practice, a body-centered eco-spirituality uh, is what I think is coming into being and we need to nurture it in ourselves and between ourselves because it's also in our roots, mm -hmm. whatever roots we have. It's in the earth of the earth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to reclaim that. Yes. If we're to have a chance. Yes. And I so appreciate that reclamation because, I mean, is it not true that mindfulness is sati means remembering or reconnecting uh -huh. back uh -huh. to the original place? And so isn't it not that like, this is your birthright. We're just coming back to what's here. And so this isn't like we have to reinvent the wheel. We just have to find our way home. And what gets in the way of finding our way home is that jacked up energy, the parasympathetic, you know, uh, or the sympathetic nervous system, I should say, or, you know, whatever, if you're doing the somatic experiencing work that I do, right. you've obviously studied, you know, also, and, and the polyvagal theory stuff that I've right. talked about on other podcasts, you know, you're familiar with what Larry's talking about. And, and, and that these are non, you know, like I said, when Ruth King says nothing's permanent, perfect or personal, these are non-personal state. These are, these are, these are nervous system adaptive strategies to keep us going but this invitation to return to ventral vagal, to social engagement, is back to what we just talked about, is necessarily relational. Like it it we are co-regulating and we are we are necessarily 
as you were with your there in hands in the earth in Italy or wherever mm-hmm. you were, that, that this is part of what we're returning to. And I guess my question for you is, in a world where we've almost, I think people are so unfamiliar with what it means to be balanced and centered because it, it feels foreign. It yeah, feels, correct. can you talk a little bit about the way in which there's strength and there's like a calm strength in that, that doesn't have to be loud and flashy, which is what we're drawn to or me, but that it gives us a sense of clarity discernment when we're in that more balanced state that there's a reason why we practice for equanimity is what I'm talking about. Yes. And I I totally agree. And cultivating the ventral state in ourselves so that we can learn how to recognize what it is like to feel well-being. Yeah. And what I've learned and continue to learn is once, as I cultivate that part, the ventral vega piece of the puzzle, the equanimity aspect of my deep consciousness, I can transform my mobilization energy into wise action. Mm. I don't lose the energy of mobilization, but I don't get confused about which way to go. I love that. <laughs> and then what what happens for me then in, in the mobilization place becomes the possibility of deep rest. So for me, these states are empty and are practice opportunities to go deeper and they interact with one another. So I can, and you know this and many of your listeners know this, you can, you can nourish well-being in yourself. You can make it grow. And, and in your brain, you can add neurons. You can reform your pathways. You, you don't have to, um, believe what you hear, mm-hmm. uh, you know, on whatever. <laughs> and I, I think that's part of the, what happens when we fall into fear. But, you know, the energy also of the witnesses, there's a, we don't have time to go into the neurochemical aspects of this, but um, each one of these experiences of instability, traumatic uh, impacts our, through our mirror neurons, through our energetic connections that we can't see between each other at a neuroceptivity level, um, and, and in the waves of our own grief, at witnessing what we recognize as injustice and unnecessary. Mm. And for me, that is a part of the gift, if I can say it that way, of George Floyd's sacrifice. Mm. It touched humanity. And people got to recognize their own humanity because his was lost. Right. And... um so I, I, I think if we can learn how to, the witnesses, you know, shame, you know, it's like the survivor syndrome, you know, I, I made it, why did I make it? Um, or the other side of it, I didn't do that. I couldn't do anything. There's the whole shame and guilt piece of all this. And so uh, there's a lot of grief work uh, for me that's required especially for the witnesses. Right. For yeah. the perpetrators too. I mean for the for the, for everybody, but each one each piece of the puzzle for me the victims is is just melancholy. I I finally understood after I did a lot of trauma work and study which I continue why my mother shouted and danced in church on Sunday. Uh she was shaking it off. Right. Right. right? What you're right. talking about shaking it off. Right. And that nervous system, I mean, to, to, to sort of let the process complete, you started mm-hmm. with that, you know, let the process complete, whatever that process is, um, that our body needs to 
allow to happen. And I think also about witnesses. And I mean, witnesses could be anything. Witnesses to the George Floyd sacrifice, murder, witnesses to historical trauma, you know. Exactly. You know, uh, just the idea of white guilt or shame as the place of, I, I always say, sometimes people feel like they're doing something good because they're feeling bad. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and, and, and I've also said something that's very unpopular in some circles, which is that shame is very narcissistic because in a way it's the child state or the ego state around attaching ourselves to the experience of the stuckness without the compassion and the distance and the space that we have for that experience to then come from that centered or wise place to tend to, you know, like Thich Nhat Hanh, right? You know, yeah, we're going to be exactly. with our baby of anger. We're going to be with our baby of shame. We're going to be, right. and that that gives us the space to then take care of that. So we aren't cloaked in that right. feeling like we have to go about the world um, trying to do equity work or good citizenship exactly. or right relationship from that place. Cause that that's not sustainable. It's not sustainable. And the, the energy trail, if I can use that, mm-hmm. that, that, uh, that the energy transformation transmission from that paradigm is um, not helpful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. It's like uh, a social worker says, well, if you could only see yourself the way I see you, Right. Um, and, you know, I hope I hope you see me well, but please <laughs> um, don't confuse your perception right. with my life. Right. <laughs> so. Right. Right. Don't. Well, and, and yeah, there's a therapy model that I'm trained in that, that says, you know, what I observe is X, which is what, you know, the Buddha would be teaching. Right. right? Like, what are we actually experiencing? What are we yeah. what are we observing or what are we? Um, and then, and then the next piece is, and what I make up about it is this. Exactly. (laughs) So the story that I'm telling myself is, is this or that. And, and so, um, I think that that's really valuable because, uh, that is necessarily based on our experiences. I want to see if we can kind of move into one of the beautiful pieces that you put in the book, um, on page 44. Do you have a book with you or no? Mm -hmm, I I do. You do? Um, this is the poem you wrote on page 44 that I like a lot that I'm Uh, wondering if you would be so willing to read. Oh, sure. Thanks. Okay. I tell you, somebody stole my face. I can't sting to stop this river of tears. Black face on the ground black face and cages. I tell you, somebody stole my face. When I found it, it was dark like the night in its elegant beauty. When I found it, it was in a dreadful theater called the white man's burden. When I found it, it was already condemned to live in a basket of lies. But when I found my hidden face, the window of eternity swung open. I tell you, somebody stole my face, my precious face. I hold it in my hands, catching tears of sorrow and joy. I hold it with the kind hands of my ancestors. I hold it turning into many faces appearing across time and space. I hold it dancing with the cosmos itself. I tell you, somebody stole my face, but I have a secret for you, my friend. Somebody stole your face too. I know you've been searching for it. Find your face, find the ground of no coming and no going. Embrace yourself, love yourself, lift yourself up so you can lift all the rest of us to higher ground. And remember, when you touch your face, George Floyd can no longer have that joy. 
I love that poem. Thank you. And especially the second to last stanza, there's really an invitation there, although not explicit, to, I believe, people who benefit from this system of white body supremacist delusion to also do the self-investigative and inquiry work around what is it to find your face, to, exactly. to who are you really? And, and, and it's James Baldwin, who you quote a lot in, you know, mm-hmm. in this book and, I suppose I'm paraphrasing that the reason why people cling to their hate so stubbornly is because when they let go of the hate, they'll be forced to deal with the pain. Pain, yeah. And how do we, and, and, and you're talking about the base of the window of tolerance of equanimity. How do we, and, and I really think what your invitation is in this book and beyond is to say, how do we do this from the inside out, each one of us and collectively? and have that, you know, continue to spread. Mm -hmm. Um, How does someone hold and tolerate the pain if they are in a place of reckoning with all that has been and is done and be able to use that equanimity to move into the place of that energetic mobility that we talk about of compassionate action? Where does someone begin? Well, I I can tell you how I'm how I have been and continue to practice and expect expect to be practicing with. Um, but but the first one is to get, get trained in somatics, really become willing to be more sensitive to your lived experience mm. in the body that you have. Uh, and so that... Um, opens up our pores, it opens up ourselves so that we become more capable of or more able to recognize our porousness. Uh, the second thing I'm, I'm working on, a continuing mind training and the deepest sense in the many kinds of meditation so that I am increasingly aware of my mind's movements toward things or away from things. And my mind's movement when it is uh, centered. Mm. The third thing I'm working on, which I continue to work on, is uh, I keep I continue to nourish my shamanic skills, my shamanic capacities, because I I believe one of the things that's been lost during lost, destroyed, um, almost wiped out of existence by the last 500 years is the spiritual practices of the old ways. Mm. And uh, many years ago, I was, I was uh, 1970 and something like that, I was meeting a group of black aboriginals from Australia who were coming to, um, to visit my community to invite us to come do some work in Australian villages, socioeconomic development projects. And I remember coming into the room and sitting with them in quiet and it was the first time I ever heard a human being breathe. Mm. They were so in their bodies. It was like you were, it was like the earth had gathered. <laughs> it was an amazing experience of just uh, being at ease in your skin, in the wind, in the breath. Um, very powerful. Um, grief training, I think, uh, is, is part of the work because some of us, as you, some of us, you know, get addicted to shame mm-hmm. and we sort of work the story <laughs> where we become the victim. Um, and, um, and so I always thought that guilt was overrated. So I don't have much to say about that, but, uh, I do think the healing our melancholy through ritual and ceremony and being outdoors, this is how I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether that's laying on the ground, whether that's uh, walking meditation through the forest or on the beach or in the mountains, staying in touch with the natural world so I don't forget I am part of the natural world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's the foundation of my wellness. Mm. When I forget, I, I mean, this is part of what the tragedy of 
this extractive matter oriented view of reality is we have cut ourselves off from any sense of being connected to the natural world. Right. And, uh, you know, there are people who are actually more, co- more connected in their minds to characters in soap operas right. than they actually are connected to their own lived experience of their one precious life. And right. for me, that's, that's a tragedy. Um, the other thing I'm, I'm working on um, is solidarity training. Uh, back to some of the insights from the polyvagal theory group. But uh, I think we need to learn, relearn, and remember how to be safe with one another. Mm. Uh, and so I'm, I'm working on creating a whole process where different ones of us can get together and just start at the basics. Uh, learning how to create a sense of safety in our own nervous system. And then sharing with one another how, how our experiences of safety and welcome have contributed to who we are and have not contributed to who we are. Mm-hmm. So to me, we have to share or the fear is not going to be on the table. Um, and so it can't be recognized as being human. And we think it's all personal back to impersonal, uh, impersonal again. And then the, the other area I'm, I'm working on creating a, a process for is co-evolutionary training. Um, and, you know, we can perform, you know, that's work kind of thing. I'm talking about really using our sacred imagination to invent the next human being mm-hmm. and, the, and the next society that can sustain that human being. Mm-hmm. And speaking of a human being as one among many beings. Right. Uh, it's just in our big headedness. We have almost destroyed everything that's around us. That's right. That there's no hierarchy, although no. in our head there is. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, that's kind of what got us into this big mess. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I want to see if I can share my, this is from your book. Mm-hmm. Um, can you explain the Wheel of America's racial karma as it's written here in your book? Sure. Thanks. Um, the uh, original impetus for the idea of white supremacy came from um, one and many different biologists, uh, especially in, in Europe, you know, like 400 years ago. Um, that was, there's that piece of it back to the, before, after the doctrine of discovery, and the work was categorizing all the all the species on the planet. So, and I, I mentioned and referenced that that scientist, but that scientist, everybody in medicine in the world has studied, and so that kind of legitimacy, and he categorized people, plants, animals. And so we were just one of the other species. We were just another hunk of matter to be named, to be labeled, and to be categorized in terms of value. And so the intent here is to create a value of human life at which I am at the top of the pyramid of value. Mm. That intent. And then that's manifested in the papers that got written, all the talks that got written, uh, the, oh God, the, the art, um, the hangings, the rapes, the murders, the sexual abuse of anyone who is not white. And then the other part of this was, uh, when whiteness really became really popular. Uh, for people to cling to as as a way to understand themselves is all a part of the manifestation of this, and it spread uh, all across the planet. And wherever you live, and and you you would know this too. Many of us who are people of color have traveled outside the U.S. but were born here will recognize how people have been educated to think about who we are before we arrive. Mm-hmm. 
And this to me is one of the, the, the condemnations of our education system. I worked with a group of teachers, uh, Claremont Graduate University for a semester on working with, uh, bringing mindfulness practice into working with marginalized children and youth. And, and part of what became clear is that they were, they had, we had already been conditioned that these children would fail mm. already. That intent was already in place because their value in terms of commercialization, et cetera, et cetera, is low. Mm -hmm. Unless they're in prison, then that actually ups the value. Mm. Um, so, so every intent is manifested okay. in some way in our thinking, it's manifested in our speech. And it's manifested in our physical behavior. And you can look through American history and see the thinking, the speech, and the physical behavior of white-bodied superiority. Mm -hmm. And then that is transmitted as it's accepted and received by a society and people benefit from that. It continues. And the retribution is, is what happens to victims. The retribution is what happens to witnesses. The retribution is what happens to perpetrators. But the retribution is also what happens to your collective soul. Yes. And, uh, and you know, I, I don't mean to be, be light about this, but when people say to me, how is it can people believe the lie about the election and, you know, my mind goes, well, we lied about what it means to be a human being. Right. From the very beginning, once you do that, you can, you can believe anything. Right. You can tell any lies acceptable. Any mis, intent, especially an intentional misperception of the truth is acceptable. And, it's, you know, you see it everywhere. We see it in our advertising. We see it in the mail we get. We see it in the news media. Mm -hmm. Um, so we're just conditioned this, this retribution is our conditioning and it's not just what happens it's how we react to what happens and how our nervous system gets trained to react to what happens while it happens and even before it happens. Mm -hmm. uh, we have to understand ourselves. And so if we don't change the, the retribution, the retribution continues day after day, week after week, body after body. Mm -hmm. And that's the continuation. And that's the continuation of white body supremacy intent. Right. And thank you for that. And, you know, I've had some folks say, just the languaging, and I'm just going to throw this out there, that you know, the languaging around white body supremacist intent or white body supremacist delusion or, mm -hmm. you know, to really add that because otherwise we're sort of underscoring the fallacy of that it's not that, but it's the ideology of right. that. And and I and I you know, I'm I'm becoming a little bit more facile in my yeah. pivoting toward trying to call that out. Because I think that it's one of the ways in which um, to talk about practice and training that we're always practicing something mm -hmm. that you know uh, it's one one more step to to practice naming the delusion that it is and then coming back to a place of of wanting to have the clear the clear seeing of what you're talking about and and one of the things that you said about the whole collective nervous system Resma Menachem talks about this with cultural somatics or mm -hmm. around having you know, essentially what's avoidant and an, an insecure avoidant attachment, cultural attachment system mm -hmm. here in the United States, which is, we would call it aversive energy. We would call it um, from a mindfulness place. But I think maybe to close, you know, could we talk a little bit more about, you know, in attachment theory, an avoidant, you know, attachment style is an adaptation around not getting what it needs, not getting the love and the care and feeling like it has to find a way to do it on its own 
And the recipe for healing, would it be that the avoidant attachment style would allow for it, would be to let in the vulnerability of connection, of love, of, of, of caring and being cared for. So how do we, how do we kind of look at your wheel, see how it functions, but, and knowing that we're in that soup, but then begin to kind of ease our way into gently, because this is going to happen overnight, um, and patiently take our, take our steps there toward, toward that. Okay. Okay. So, you know, I mean, um, every model or diagram I create, I understand to be paper mache. Um, and, uh, only for the purpose of having something like hangers for the closet, mm-hmm. but it's not the closet. Right. And so we can practice the same way. So every morning when I wake up, I set my intention for the day to be well. And I do that by my morning meditation practice very consciously. Uh, and then I go water and talk to the plants and the birds very consciously, very present, nothing else to do. I, I spend some time enjoying silence. So I get up really early so I can really feel like I got bathed in the wonder of being a living being on this planet before I meet what comes at me <laughs> through the day and what comes out of me mm-hmm. um, through the day. So for me, it, it, be, it begins by my own intention to heal and transform my own trauma. And I've recently been using the phrase, which shocked some people, and I said, I am beyond drama. And what I mean is, uh, on most of the time, I now have enough equanimity to hold my trauma instead of having my trauma hold me. Mm. And to me, that's where we need to get to. Uh, we need to to understand, even from re recreating the narrative of our own personal and collective histories to realize and celebrate the brilliance and the genius and the resilience and the miraculous nature of our ancestors who have come thus far. Mm. And that tap into that energy. Uh, you know, not the energy of CNN or Fox News or blah, blah, blah. That's energy. If that's what you want to do to yourself. Uh, but you have to know whatever you tap into, you become. Yeah. And so uh, a, a spiritually based earth centered practice every day and you can create them. You can have them. Other people, there are things online you can find, but start small, but do something every day that grounds you in your body so you don't live your day out in your head. Yeah, beautiful. I love that. And 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 the Lotus Institute um is a great place to to start. You want to just uh give that uh a little shout out. Um Oh, sure. Um Lotus Institute is a educational Buddhist oriented um nonprofit and we are in constant creation of ways to re- share the Dharma in ways that recognize and empower change makers around the world. Beautiful. And it's a practice community. It's an empowerment community. It's a collective. Yes. And um, you can find more online at, I believe it's the Lotus Institute.org. Is that dot right? Org. Yes. Yeah. Dot org. Um, Dr. Larry Ward, is there anything else that you'd like to add about our conversation today or anything that we didn't get to that is a point you want to highlight that? Well, I want to just follow up on the last one, a, um, a thought from Tick Nat Hans entering my mind. And it's important to know that because we are connected, as I cultivate my wellness, that gives the energy of wellness a greater chance to be spread. That's right. To flow through. So again, not just seeing ourselves as lumps of clay, though we are miraculous and beautiful lumps of clay, mm-hmm. we are also more than that. 
And so to access our whole system uh, and enhance our nervous system so it becomes capable of living a planetary life Mm. in personal, interpersonal, and systemic ways. For me, that's otherwise our daily life is lived in our nervous system. And if we don't elevate it, help it (laughs) uh, go beyond, you know, the Dick and Jane cartoon, (laughs) we're we're in trouble. We're in trouble. Yeah. And, and, you know, when you're speaking that, um, what, what comes to mind for me is, I mean, my own personal journey, I'd always been a seeker. I'd always been in therapy, but I really wasn't able to crack the code, so to speak until really more recently, five or six years ago. And, um, and really kind of understood and got at a deeper level after many traumas and after all the kinds of things through mindfulness practices and somatic practices, what was really going on and neuroscience study and things like that. And then more the history, this, the history that I studied that nobody teaches you in school right. about America's racial history. Um, you know, I think it's James Baldwin who said, uh, the American dream is the black American, African American nightmare. nightmare yes. Um, that, that they're not separate, that, that, that one is predicated mm-hmm. on the other. But anyway, w- w- what I was thinking is that, you know, even in my own family, there are folks who just refuse to go to therapy. And I'm not saying all therapy is the answer. There are many, many ways of healing, whether it's through arts and shamanic activities mm-hmm. or whether it's more of these somatic practices, but, the whole point is to be able to be in your body, to be in yourself. And a lot of times, I think, in general, people don't want to do it because I don't feel like it. It seems too hard. What's the big deal? I'll let it go. Let's just forget the past. You know, let's move on. And what you're really saying is, is be magnanimous. If you can't do it for you, or if it feels too small for you, maybe cultivating a sense of like, you're doing this for the collective, that you are a part of the collective, Mm -hmm, that the mm -hmm. thing that's kind of making you feel so unhappy and small is ironically what you can uproot when you lean in to doing some of the the work um, around this. And so the invitation, I think, is, yes, work that we do, but as we lift, you know, everything is lifted is kind of, I think, what your final point there was. Yeah. and. Um, you know, we've, we've been conditioned not to be collective. Right. So we don't know how really, um, you know, the, in community building and different projects I've done around the world, whether it's an intentional community or a village or inner city neighborhood, most people's expectations and conditioning and habits around community come from family. Um, or a larger circle that influenced the family. And so, um, and again, back to some of the work in the polyvagal uh, theory, so much of our nervous system is impacted early in our lives. Um, and so for me, you know, tra- therapy has been positioned to be unhelpful because you might have to take time off work. Right. Right. So we need to understand how we've been conditioned to be workers right. and to and to use our lives to make other people wealthy right. while we're sick. Right. <laughs> and uh, that conditioning of feeling bad when you're not working 12 hours. Right. There's something wrong with me. I'm a failure. I'm, and that the depression you may be experiencing is the earth's depression coming from being unloved by us? Yes. Yes. Unrespected by us. Yes. Yes. Um, and, and, and we can come back into right relationship and come yes, correct on can. that. Any day that we're breathing, we can do that. That's so. correct. And the earth is just more than happy, always <laughs> waiting. Delighted. Delighted. For us to be here. Yes. And I'm delighted to see it blooming as my little yes. apple blossoms. And oh, great. The birds. The birds I, I took clients outside today and they were, the birds were chirping. Oh, uh, wonderful. A lot. So, um, Dr. Larry Ward, America's racial karma. It is a small but, um, dense and, um, profound and poetic book. I encourage everyone to pick up a copy. 
and um, find him at the lotusinstitute.org also in practice community. And I just want to thank you so much for being on Rerooted and having this rich conversation with me today. Thank you, Francesca. Take good care. You too, Larry. Okay. Bye-bye. Be safe and be well. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.